Star Trek, The Nerdy Frontier. These are the discussions of the Good Time Society. Their continuing mission to explore each episode, to seek out new topics and ridiculous observations, to boldly watch what they've already watched before. And welcome to episode three of To Boldly Watch. Today we watched Code of Honor, which was the episode where a mission of mercy is jeopardized when a planetary ruler decides he wants the Enterprise officer as his wife. Becca, Xander, what did you think? Oof, I had repressed this episode and I forgot everything that had happened until it started (laughs) happening again. And then I went, oh yeah, that's why. (laughs) I immediately felt so uncomfortable. I don't know if I've ever seen this episode before. I had no recollection of it or perhaps I too had repressed it. But there were so many things that were problematic in this episode that I don't think were necessarily problematic in the script writing but in the casting of all black actors and treating them as if they are this barbaric foreign race. It was painful to watch in a lot of ways. And as we know, the crew of the Enterprise was sent over to, was it Ligon? Ligon? Uh, Ligon 2 to go help out this uh, people that had access to a vaccine that was much needed at a distant star base for a plague that was just wiping people out. And when they uh, visit the Enterprise, they actually kidnap Tasha Yar. A quick note on the casting, because you had mentioned it, because it's sort of outside of the episode structure. Uh, I believe the rumor was in the script itself, there was no mention of them being, they have to be like black actors. That was completely like a casting choice. And uh, the director for this, the rumor was that he was fired halfway through because he was racist to the guest stars. So there was just a lot of baggage going into this episode uh, before they even started filming. Yeah, I couldn't maintain my flying in blind. I really had to look some stuff up after this because I was just so taken aback that this is what things were like in 1987, that white people were so unaware of what was absolutely problematic. And the director, Russ Mayberry, was fired. And it actually is noted in the Wikipedia that Will Wheaton is the one who said that it was perhaps that he was racist towards the guest stars after they were cast. Uh, so, so let's actually give a little context to what's going on here because we discussed like our feelings about it without discussing uh, what it is. But there's this whole tribe of uh, Ligonians. That, they yes. Right, right. They're all um, African-American actors or uh, mm-hmm. African actors, and they all kind of exude a very, I guess, uh, honor-based society that is also very uh, rigid in its ways. And it doesn't have much else beyond that explained in the episode. May I add tribal and misogynistic? You can and should add that, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say misogynistic is one just one facet of it, right? Well, and that part was overt. I, w- I want to <laughs> talk about the misogyny because the misogyny is the plot of the episode, that Yar is this strong female, and on their planet, in their culture, women hold the land and men have the power to rule it, which is absolutely ridiculous because, historically speaking, Stripping women of everything, including their land and their ability to own goods, is what makes them weaker, you know, and subservient and repressed and oppressed. This is classic Trek at its kind of ugliest. You can see the intention, uh, and this speaks volumes uh, about like Gene Roddenberry and sort of his vision of what he thought the lessons were. This was clearly supposed to be didactic. It was supposed to be teaching a lesson to... Uh, to humans of like, see how ridiculous that sounds when you skin it like an alien. I think originally the script was supposed to be like a lizard 
uh, race. Reptilian. Yeah, that was supposed to be reminiscent of, like, China, which is why, and we'll get into it with the episode, but Picard randomly sets down a thing going, this reminds me of your culture. And immediately you go, oh, this must be an African thing. And he's like, China. And you're like, what? What? Where did that come from? (laughs) Yeah, the Chinese comparison was really interesting. Well, that was what was in the original script, that it was based off the samurai code of honor, which makes a lot more sense to me. It's Japan, by the way. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) And is very reminiscent of, well, yeah, he said the Sung Dynasty, 14, uh, 14th century, and then data corrects to 13th century, of course, because, you know, you got to get data in there with the data correction. But yeah, their costuming was also Asian in origin. Yeah, it's interesting what they have to kind of do with, uh, quote unquote, aliens in Star Trek, as Xander mentioned in our first episode about them making kind of costume choices as opposed to heavy makeup choices early on. In fact, I couldn't notice, but did all of these guys have scars on their face or just the top two? Oh, they all had scars and scars on their chest. It was like, oh, well, we've got a little makeup budget. Let's just get some sculpting wax and give them... eh, One scar, because these aliens, they have scars. That's what makes them aliens. I think it was supposed to give the feel that they've been through rough and tumble, like, contests of power before, because there were scars on, like, their chest and their arms and stuff like that as well from presumably past battles. Uh, talking about that, too, and as we go into, like, the Act 1 where we're meeting these these aliens, one thing that struck me was just this lineup of white actors from the Federation and then the black actors from the alien planet. Like, they couldn't have thrown Geordi or Worf in there just to make it seem a little less like, ooh, these black people are the foreign aliens. I was curious why Worf wasn't in this episode. Yeah, and if Luton had been a black actor and then the rest of the actors were, you know, whatever, um, black and white and everything in between, then I think it would have been totally fine and not like this race of aliens is so foreign and so backwards and we don't like them and we'll show you why. It was just reinforcing these existing negative attitudes towards black people at the time. Well, it's also a little interesting that this happened in the late 80s because this is kind of a rehash of a script that looks like it was from the original series, right? I don't think it was actually a script from the original series, but it kind of mirrors a lot of the tropes of that, which was like the aliens that kind of emulate a culture and the captain having a little bit of trickery in terms of what he will accept as their culture. And we actually get into the Prime Directive a little bit in this episode, which is a running theme throughout all of Star Trek. And I'm excited that actually has finally started to come up a little bit. And thank God the Prime Directive is there because there's this moment where it's like, oh, if only we didn't have the Prime Directive, we could just squash these people. And it's like, oh, God, even just that flex of we could do this feels so imperialistic and colonial in just its nature of being in the script at all, which it's such a subtle thing, but it's these subtleties that are what we're starting to notice in the present day and realize that that's not right. Well, we're also coming from a place of our understanding of Star Trek and sort of how these things should happen in the future. Whereas back when these episodes were coming out, they really had to make it sort of spell it out for the audience because the the audience that was watching this was not the the sci-fi fan who will look into what is the prime directive? Ooh, why don't they just shoot the aliens? Like that's what (laughs) the audience was used to. The aliens were the bad guys. We would go in there, we would kill them or they would kill us and we would defend our ourselves. So this was, I think, playing into, we have to explain what the prime directive is to the audience so that they, we clearly tell them we could 
blow them up. We're very powerful and we're very strong, but we won't because it's against our code and this is what the code is. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about what the code is because I'm pretty sure it's the boldly go where no one has gone before to explore, (laughs) like basically the intro. Explain to me exactly what the Prime Directive is. I know the general gist of it, but not where we get the wording. So essentially the Prime Directive is just put in place so that when you are making contact with other races that don't know aliens exist yet, uh, that you have these sort of procedures put into place, um, both with making first contact and with influencing how they develop uh, with technology. Because we've seen previous examples of people getting a hold of technology that is beyond their civilization and causing trouble for the whole galaxy, and the opposite, where people are being held back, or whole races are being held back because they don't have access to the technology that they need to. So the Prime Directive is put into place, which allows for them to go undercover on planets or uh, blend in and abide by local customs. It's sort of a a blanket catch-all for writers as well. I love it because it really puts a a real debate into everything that Starfleet does because they meet a lot of civilizations that, according to the Prime Directive, they're not supposed to interfere with the natural development of that civilization. But then they see injustices and they have to wrestle with that dichotomy. Throughout the series, they come up on different sides of the Prime Directive. I think they both violate it and obey it a lot of times. And to me, it's probably one of the most uh, debated parts of Star Trek is like, should they do the things they do? For instance, one of the most well-known examples comes from one of the movies of the original series, which is four, right? Where they go back in time to Earth and actually change the past in order to save it. Yeah. And I won't spoil that whole thing for you, Becca, but they, they violate it just to save Earth in the future. And it's... I don't know. It comes up at different times. Oh, man. You have to point me to your nuclear vessels. (laughs) All time travelers should have a prime directive. I mean, time travel is one of those real risky things, not just related to Star Trek, but in all things. There is a separate temporal prime directive, and that is for messing with time in the past or the future. Thank God. (laughs) Yeah, we'll be revisiting the prime directive a lot in future episodes, and I'm interested to see, like, what side we come down on it versus what side the crew of the Enterprise came down at versus... You know, the rest of society. But let's actually keep moving on with the episode. Tasha Yar shows off her Aikido skills in the holodeck where we have like a blue gym mat that gets manifested. I was kind of surprised at that choice. It felt like they kind of dragged that in. Yeah, it's a holodeck. You could have a field of daisies there to land (laughs) softly upon. And it's just like a standard sweaty gym mat. I wanted to speak on that a little bit because this is the first time that you see what the holodeck kind of looks like when it's turned off or not in its full capacity. So I think they wanted to show that when it's not... Not a, a, a field of daisies or a forest or whatever. It's this room with the yellow lines, and this is the first time that we see that. Uh, and I think that that's what they wanted to establish with that. They are showing pieces of this technology. Did we not see it in the first episode, or was it was straight into the wilderness? It was that? just outside. Yeah, we didn't see any waiting room. Yeah, we didn't see the mechanics. Speaking of the mechanics, did you guys get how when the Lutanians transported, it was like the old effect from the '60s, and they even mention it in there. They're like, yes, they use old. Old transporter technology. That's some racist shit. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no. <laughs> Your people are backwards. They do everything slower. This is why casting all black actors was so uncomfortable. It's like, sure, if you're going to make a race of people that are barbaric and don't have the technology that everybody else has and have these uh, codes of honor, then you've got to mix it up or, or make it more unrealistic. I understand there were constraints of makeup design that really held them back from making aliens look like non-humanoid creatures but they were like oh these almost humanoids it's like 
No, that's just black people. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, that was unfortunate, and I think it really is a, a casting decision that they made the decision to make all of them black and all of them this way. But with the transporter thing, I did want to explain a little bit, uh, because they were introducing this new transporter effect when Next Generation started. Uh, original series had a very uh, established way that transporter uh, beaming out looked. And so I think this is their callback, and it just so happens that it fall fell in this episode. But it was them explaining why the beaming looks new or different, and there's a change because it is the next generation. So again, this is their the writer's way of sort of explaining the new technology to uh, an audience that may have grown up on Trek and go, that's not what beaming looks like. Why does it look different now? You know, at the, the lowest common denominator of understanding. And there's some things that are really interesting about the plot here, about what it, it might have been like if it didn't have these very problematic elements which is that there's a line when they first teleport in saying the female is exactly what I needed. So there is this underlying thing that it's not just he's attracted to Yar. He needs her for some purpose, some devious plan that he has, which we find out later on is he doesn't like his number one wife. He wants to push her to number two. Well, and he needs land and money, right? Like he's losing power or something like that. I, that part of it kind of got a little vague for me in terms of like she owns land, but he runs it. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's supposedly how their culture works. And I think part of what muddied it perhaps is that they changed directors partway through filming, <laughs> yeah. which is always turbulent on a film production when there isn't that person at the helm or when people don't trust that person and they don't really have the the vision to bring the story through the entire episode. So I think that's probably a lot of the difficulty we see in, in the actual story coming across instead of just like, mm, female, me take. Right, and I think the outcome that he's looking for is that no matter what, these two women are sort of fighting over him. If one dies, he gets their land and takes this new exotic alien wife. If his current wife wins, the new exotic alien wife dies, but he gets to keep his status and uh, prove that she's better. Too bad he didn't use Ligonia and Google to figure out that Starfleet officers, they're just paid in like room and board, right? There's no money in Star Trek society. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one of the interesting exercises that they could have done was to flip the genders of it. If it had been a, a woman coming on with like the man owning the land and things like that, it could have been the same uh, sort of didactic allegory without the direct uh, correlation to how it was on Earth with humans. You know what I mean? Oh, Xander, we should send you back in time if this doesn't violate the Prime Directive <laughs> and uh, have you right in that room because I like that a lot better. Although they do do a little gender flip thing at the end, which we'll get to. So yeah, well, let's keep going. Picard gets pissed, fires some warning shots, which I don't remember them firing warning shots very often. I think he says he fires it like a kilometer above the surface, which they clearly fired it in space. That distance was a little off. There. Yeah, a kilometer. <laughs> I thought it was a little much to shoot phasers or torpedoes when his officer is there. They also didn't know where she was and they were just firing indiscriminately around the planet. <laughs> but anyway, uh, then they come to a conclusion that it's similar to a counting coup situation like the Plains Indians of North America, right? So that was a yet an, a third culture, a third non-white culture that was brought in to be like, see, they're different yet similar to us. In fact, I forgot this, but Riker and Troy in the turbo lift in the first uh, part of the episode actually mentioned they are like human cultures or something like that. They developed similarly to us. So I guess that's them kind of shoehorning in everything they can about different non-white cultures and kind of mushing it into this one. Yeah. Anybody who's been oppressed by white people, uh, let's say that they're similar. <laughs> 
<laughs> Luton reaches out, uh, says, you know what? Come on down. You can have her back since you asked nicely. Picard and Troy eventually travel down there. Uh, Wait, hold on, because there was this weird power play where it's like, actually, we Googled everything we could about uh, these people. And it turns out you just have to say, please. <laughs> yeah, I think this was uh, the classic Trek plot and the, the way that they're trying to set up of we have to conform to the rules of these species and, and play by their rules, so to say. Uh, because there's no reason to do that. You know what I mean? They have these starships, they have replicators, they have transporters. There's no reason why they need to play by these rules. But if with the prime directive in play um, and with the research that they've done, the quickest way to a solution is to play by their rules or, or do whatever they say. It just so happens that playing by their rules uh, falls into this misogynistic, racist sort of play. But if it had been Klingons, for example, with this warrior culture, or any sort of other alien race that says, oh, well, you know, you have to do this hand gesture before you speak. It's very important that you remember to do this hand gesture. It's, you know, it's a similar thing. Can I just say that hand gesture is probably what we'll adopt in the new age post-corona? Like, that was a great social distancing handshake. Yeah. Oh, man, the double high five in slow motion was real good. <laughs> okay, I want to talk about when Wesley gets a field trip to the bridge because Dr. Crusher is like, hey, uh, Captain, you were kind of a dick to my son. Can he just come sit on the bridge? And then he sits in a chair that I thought, oh, my God, where is Worf? Worf isn't here. And it turns out from a little Googling that Worf was not supposed to be original cast member. In fact, I found a picture of the early cast and it didn't have Worf in it. I think they they decided or Gene Roddenberry decided later on that, oh, wow, this guy has presence. Originally, we just kind of wanted to show that Klingons were at peace with this Federation. And then it turned out that Worf became a core cast member later, but he wasn't originally there all the time, which actually would have really helped because Klingons are, of course, kind of barbaric and ritualistic and honor-based society that he might have had a lot of insight into what was going on here. Right. I think they, when they made TNG, they, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Xander, but they wanted to avoid some of the aliens being prominent in the plot that were prominent in the original series. That's why you don't see a lot of Vulcans at first. That's why the Klingons aren't antagonists at first, and they develop more into, like, Romulans and I think Cardassians later on. Yep. And oh, the Ferengi are new too, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I'm sorry, did you say Cardassians? <laughs> that's season eight. <laughs> Cardassians, yeah. Got it. <laughs> but yeah, I think the first season is rough no matter how you look at it. But I think this really was a makeup uh, budget issue too. I think Michael Dorn, as far as I understand, was was fairly involved in, in the process with the cast as well. Uh, the Michael Dorn, the actor who plays Worf. Uh, and so they wanted to use him more often, but it was a a budget constraint uh, and also writing the Klingon character, they just couldn't find it quite yet. I wonder if part of it, I mean, part of it to me, I was like, I bet Worf isn't here because he was like, I'm not going to be a part of this episode. This is not going to age well. A lot of the actors did have those feelings uh, on set. At least they say that they did, uh, that they, while it was being filmed, they were uncomfortable with the things that were happening. The cast did not love this episode. Jonathan Frakes, this is all according to Memory Alpha, by the way. Jonathan Frakes referred to the episode as, quote, a racist piece of shit. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, okay. Uh, Brent Spider regarded this episode as, quote, the worst episode we ever did and an inadvertently racist episode. Yeah, a lot of people say the worst episode ever. According to Wesley Crusher, if the cast wasn't arbitrarily decided to be African-American, the idea of the episode being racist or non-racist wouldn't have been an issue. So pretty much what you were saying, Becca. Yeah, totally. I mean, of course, cast black actors, but don't cast only black actors in this thing where we're frowning upon this society. That's what made it 
So rough. So what do you think was Beverly's conversation with Wesley before they went in the turbo lift? She's like, I'm going to take you up to the bridge, okay? I just want you to hide in the corner of the turbo lift. If anybody sees you, just breathe quietly. You know you're not breathe supposed to be up there, but I'm going to try and talk the captain into being up there. It's going to be fine, okay? No, mom, don't. I, I'm so embarrassed about last time. He yelled at me last time. No, it's going to be fine. I'm going to ask him real nicely. I'm told him about what a dick he was to you last mom, time. Mom, I don't even want to. Don't make it a big deal. He's going to let me up there when I'm older. I, I can wait. No, he's going to let you sit at the con. I promise. Mom, that's insane. I'm 14. He's not going to let me sit at the con. No, I'm going to talk to him. He delivered your father's body back to us. He owes us. I love Beverly Crusher, but I'm really disappointed that she can't figure out how to replicate a vaccine with a replicator. And I know that, you know, covered up this plot hole a little bit, but um, she can't replicate the vaccine. They gave a, a little sample, like, here's what you get if you give us everything we want. And if you have a replicator, if you have a, a, a microscope, you can see the components of this vaccine. Maybe you don't have access to the rare plant that's only on on their planet that your replicator doesn't have samples of, but come on. Also, the point of a vaccine is to have an incredibly small sample, right? So it doesn't kill people. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, you're hitting on the points, uh, Becca. You are a true Star Trek person now. You yes. are you're coming up with these uh, reasonings that are within this world, and uh, this is not for you. This is for the average TV viewer who's just like, oh, why? Why can't they do that? So they always have to explain with, with these magic tools that they have, like the replicators or the holidays decks or the weapons or the shields or anything, something has to malfunction or go wrong for the plot to move forward. It could be we can't replicate this specific wave pattern or we can't specifically do this one thing because otherwise that would be the answer to everything. Um, one thing I did want to bring up, though, that was kind of tying everything together that I found interesting in my rewatch this time was the attitude of Riker towards Wesley versus Dr. Crusher. He's so kind and welcoming to Wesley in being a child, and I understand understood that. But he was so cold to Dr. Crusher in this episode, especially towards the end where we're coming up to. But I just thought it was funny that they're both family members on the same vessel and Riker as a character treats them so differently. Wait, I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that either. Riker was cold to Dr. Crusher, you're saying? In my rewatch of it, I don't think the characters really or the actors really understood the relationships between them. And it was very hard to dance between that militaristic line and the friendship line. But in this one, it seemed very hard and cold whenever he was talking to Dr. Crusher. Oh, interesting. There was a weird moment when Deanna Troy uh, is suggesting the captain goes down and she says, Commander. And he's like, Commander, that's awfully formal. But they call him Commander always, <laughs> right? I think that was referring to her relationship specifically with him being Imzadi. But they're on the bridge. She's got to talk like that. She can't just be like, Imzadi yeah. or whatever that word is. <laughs> Imzadi? Imzadi, yeah. Hey, Willie boy, what up? I got to tell you that I am feeling a sexual energy from all these Lutanians. Uh, that was the thing I wanted to comment on, that Deanna Troy, throughout the episode, it seems like they're kind of trying to refine her tone because later in the episode when she is on the planet and talking to Yar, she's very, very harsh and very hard. And then in this scene on the bridge, she's talking about the sexual energy she feels from all of them. And, and that felt a little, um, I don't know, too much. Yeah, it's not even about attractiveness at that point. She just mentions sexual energy a little bit. And that scene where she uh, informed Natasha Yar that she liked Luton and Yar's like, oh, I guess I do. Well, I mean, I'd fuck him, but oh, no, how'd you get me like that? Oh, damn you, Deanna Troy, with your mischievous ways. 
But yeah, I would fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> like Stockholm Syndrome after about an hour and a half of being there? Again, we're coming at it from our perspective that's a sort of modern look at both romance and sexual uh, arousal type of thing. Because you have to remember when this was coming out, people didn't really have this separation of romance and romantic attraction versus sexual attraction. And I think this was them, again, playing to the lowest common denominator of an audience member going, no, no, you can be attracted to someone and you can't help how you feel uh, in that sexual attraction, but romantic attachment and wanting to be with a person is a separate thing. That was the lesson I think they were trying to teach. They did it horribly. Another thing exacerbated by the casting is that the whole plot of this blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman that is sort of like a delicate flower, even though she's a tough security person, which is probably why they didn't see it as problematic at the time, but then being stolen by a black man just has so many connotations of like the things that white supremacists talk about fearing the most of like stealing women. Not only that, but it it calls forth like the damsel in distress and it was supposed to be, Yara is supposed to represent the opposite of that, of a strong non-damsel in distress, but falls into that trope anyway. Again, they try it in the beginning of the episode when they mention that, yeah, Tasha is our security officer and that's going to be okay with you because it's okay with us. So they are trying to show that, you know, they have a quality of the sexes in Starfleet as best they can. And then they just present it to this other culture. And not only that, uh, this at the time, this was sort of the emergence of LGBT culture sort of in in the zeitgeist. And I think they really want to, because Yar is so queer coded, especially for the time, like that haircut and and just the 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 energy that she produces, it sort of screams lesbian, right? And so I think that this, as much as uh, they were thinking forward, for whatever reason, they had a it was a little bit homophobic, and so they wanted to establish that no, Tasha Yar is straight. She is attracted to men. See, look, see. Oh God! But then at the end, she mentions there might be complications and now I get that line (laughs) and they were I think alluding to her romantic attraction to data which they keep trying to force in there for some reason because anybody but another woman it has to be data it's just awful they could have put him in the room to make that one sell little eye contact so Picard and Troy go down to the banquet which is supposed to be a huge banquet but I'm pretty sure there's about less than 20 people in attendance (laughs) Yeah, it's super sparse, but their crowd sizes of mumbling and reaction sounds was way more people than the, like, seven people on screen. It was great. Totally classic Trek. Hey, budget people. (laughs) But back up at the Enterprise, Data visits LaForge, who's shaving uh, with his visor off. Now, I feel like when I'm shaving, I kind of want to see what's going on. Shaving without a mirror is really difficult. Right, Xander? Jake, you can't shave your sideburns into points (laughs) if that visor is blocking it. Uh. Really good point. But you don't shave that high, do you? It's kind of like a keto when you put a blindfold on, you know? You've got you've to go with the feel, feel the wind on your cheeks. Technically speaking, and I'm pushing up my glasses here, uh, <laughs> I don't think his visor would be able to see a reflection in a mirror. It reads like light waves and things like that. So so who knows? Maybe, uh, but it would be different. And What? Wait. It's like light waves and heat yeah. sen- sensing and anything that is not visual. I, I don't think he can see color. Isn't a mirror a light wave? Uh, again, this is science magic mumbo jumbo this fascinates me though i don't know if he'd be able to see like the individual hairs or how that would look it's more of like when you look into like a heat reader uh, and you see like sort of the heat signatures at different levels oh and this started the fan fiction of how geordie is a vampire <laughs> 
It's just a mirror thing. That's it. Garlic is fine. This is also a good example of the friendship forming between Data and Jordy. And and like you had mentioned, uh, Data brings up the the joke and the pursuit of being more human, uh, which we find is a, a character arc for Data. A man asks if he can have some kidney beans, uh, and he asks for the kiddies. <laughs> and then the the storekeep says, "What'd you say? What do you mean kiddies? We don't have any kiddies. We just have kidneys." I said kiddlies, diddle I? <laughs> <laughs> I retold it perfectly. Yep. It's such a dad joke for the 80s, which is like an, a supreme old ancient joke now. But LeVar Burton's laugh is about the greatest sound in the universe. <laughs> that man, he's just got a voice. I genuinely laughed at this whole exchange too, much when Data tries humor with a straight face, which is the best way to try it and fail, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, Brett Spiner only gets better about this through the episodes as well. This was definitely the best scene of the episode in my perspective. Yeah, and I think this is where Brent is starting to find where that line that he has to toe is between the humanity of Data, the jokiness, and the sort of like side-eye wink-wink to the audience. Because so far it's been a lot of like techno babble, and then, oops, sorry, I'm a robot. Yeah, totally. And this was all happening on the ship as our friends are down on the planet, and they're getting ready for this banquet, and... This banquet just really, I get that they're trying to highlight the things about misogyny and oppression of women that have for millennia been a problem here on Earth. And, um, oh, I, I just, I don't know that it's making it different enough that we can understand it. Like you were, your suggestion, Xander, that if it were gender roles flipped, then we could see the absurdity of controlling someone to control everything about them. It's not, it's not love. Right. So yeah, I, I was definitely, just this whole episode, I, I understand that it was trying to highlight that in a sort of pseudo-feminist way, but it just didn't do it for me. They should and do feel bad. So you're vindicated in that list. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so uh, act four, we get uh, Yurina and Yar actually confronting each other, which I've kind of realized their names are stupidly similar. Yarina and Yar. He only goes for why name women. Um, also, I don't know why I didn't notice that Tasha's full name was Natasha, but that made total sense. And I was just kind of like, oh, I didn't pay attention to that at all. Yeah, I thought it was a fun little character quirk, especially because we're on this formal bridge militaristic environment to know that she gave a nickname of Tasha and prefers to be called that as opposed to Natasha. And even the captain respects that is... I think unintentional, but a little bit of a nod towards uh, trans culture, or at least it feels good towards trans culture, I would assume. Or identity a little yeah. bit. And so, like, get a given name and a chosen name versus the name that you were given at birth. Oh, that's really nice. I like that way of looking at it. Did you know that there is a re before my name? Oh, yeah, that's right. There you go. Rebecca. Ew, don't say that. <laughs> uh, we get this moment, too, with her where we see the Kobayashi Maru. Uh, which is there, there's no win situation because uh, Yar tries to talk with Yurina, uh, who's such a passionate actress. I really liked her scene here, uh, even though, you know, it's like her character wasn't listening the way it was scripted. The actress playing Yurina really had this beautiful moment of you are on our world and this is how we do it here. That's one of the things that Denise Crosby, the actress who played Tasha Yar, I think she was ready to act in any of the scenes that she was given. In. And so when she was placed against another actor, we could really see 
see that give and take between them and that it was a solid scene I think between the two women and it should have been more of that and and less of the men deciding their fates absolutely like uh, the captain goes to talk with Luton and he says something so upsetting I don't remember where it was but it was like uh, oh yeah that's all women are good for huh I understand the proper value of a woman. That's what it was. Yeah, this was Picard playing into their culture and sort of playing the game to sort of get what he wants because now we know they have a plan moving forward. The whole crew has a plan. Would you call that locker room talk? Yeah, and unfortunately it sucks. What did you guys think of the competitive tag arena that these two women had to fight in? Oh my goodness. Well... Another thing I have to say about the woman playing Arena, uh, very great actor, not a bodybuilder by any means. So watching her swing around on the jungle gym looked a little silly because she's a, a, a thin woman, not not a strong woman. And it was like, oh, looking at her preparing out the window, I I feel even more confident. And, and Yar, the same thing for Tasha Yar. Uh, they're they're both beautiful women, great actresses, like, I don't really believe them as fighters. I mean, earlier when we were seeing her keto training and the opponent she was fighting would fling himself in a flip, (laughs) it reminded me of early Buffy when she's throwing a giant monster across the room. Uh, (laughs) But like, obviously, those are meant to be a little silly. And and this is not trying to be campy. You nailed it right on the head when you said the the, the time period, Aikido was sort of becoming a thing in, in the the West, like, oh, you don't have to be big and strong f- to win a fight. You can be nimble and use the opponent's strength against them to sort of even the odds. I think that's what the intention was. Um, but this jungle gym with like pincushion mittens is not great. <laughs> pincushion mittens. They look so silly with their giant immobile pincushion mittens is exactly the way to describe it. Oh my God. Well, and how simple the game is, is simply you have to touch the other person, which will poison and kill them when these women are kind of dancing around really poorly around this thing and like exposing their backs a lot. I played this as a kid. It's called playing chicken. You just got to tap their knees. Did you guys ever play that? Uh, anyway, Hold there on. was a moment. Wait, we have to pause. Did you just ask me, a closeted gay kid when I was younger, if I ever played chicken where you place your hand on a straight guy's knee and see how far up his leg you could get? Yes, I am very familiar. <laughs> oh, uh, my chicken was not that. <laughs> You just have to tap their knees. No, 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 no. (laughs) Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a fun kind of chicken. (laughs) No, this is just one where you have to tap their knees. And if you happen to have a poison finger, it's a lot worse. Um, But there was this moment where they're there as the everyone surrounding them is tapping their sticks together, which, oh, gosh. Uh, Back Back to that. Uh, the, and they have these such silly puppet hands. Um, they're, they're like, there's this moment where Yar's face, you're seeing every morsel of, of what she was feeling in that moment of, I don't love him, but I have to do this to cure so many people. And and she really is a great actress, you know. Uh, right. Yeah, but, but more close-ups would have helped this fight. <laughs> this felt, again, very classic Trek. This was Kirk versus the Gorn. This was Kirk versus Spock, even. In some of the early episodes, the fight choreography has never been good for Star Trek ever. It still isn't. Oops. Uh, but uh, this specifically, I heard also a rumor that the the actresses made it look uh, a little less than desired, so that the whole episode would be 
be scrapped. This is, again, just rumors oh. flying through the mill, but uh, the, it was the same thing as the rumors of, um, of Kirk and Uhura messing up every take except for the one where they actually kiss, in that they were trying to control in what sense they could as actors what was going out to the public. That was, I guess, an excuse that was going out, but who knows if that was true or not. Promise me none of you will ever bomb an episode so we don't release it. I cannot promise anything. <laughs> I've already done it. Oh, no! <laughs> Uh, do you guys notice that Yar almost hit several people with that fist when she was walking into the arena? Including Jordy! She was going to kill Jordy! I know, right? (laughs) Be careful. Just swinging that thing around. Oh, these are deadly poison? Huh? She was so careful when she was coming out, and I think she just forgot and then (laughs) swings around like this close to Jordy, who is blind, by the way! (laughs) Also, that audience member didn't die, right? The one who got stabbed? Because... Or no, he did die because it was poison. Oh, he totally died. He did. That's, he did. That's nuts. No one really reacted to that. He, His buddies, he got carted away and his buddies just kind of like, oh, bummer. The glove just flew off. See, the men are dispensable. No, no, just kidding. Uh, no, but there is a scene and I made, I made a timestamp of it at like 21 minutes and 33 seconds or so. You can see in this scene, there are a bunch of extras that are walking past the camera and an extra full on hits the cameraman and you see it like I a shake. I saw the camera wobble. That's what that was? I, that's my best guess. Okay, oh, I didn't see an extra hit it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If oh. you look at it, it's, yeah, 21 minutes or so. Just watch for a bit. And as they come forward, my guess is that an extra hit the cameraman or the camera. And they kept it. So Yar hits Yurisha, Yurina, and uh, they both transport away. Uh, we find out that the captain's got some other things planned. But, like, when we get up to the ship, it turns out that Crusher has resurrected the person? Like, she legally died? Is that what I'm to understand? Because that was a little bit of a stretch, right? That was their way of sort of getting around it, is that, like, technically she died, so we fulfilled your end of the bargain, see? Now we can do whatever we want because we're no longer in this contest. Technically we won, contest over, now, oops, she's revived. Problem solved with our technology that you don't have because you're dumb and backwards. And the technology is we signed the death certificate. And then we, she's fine now. <laughs> because they were caught up in the bureaucracy of all of it in the beginning of you have to say please and you have to do this. Now they're sort of turning it on its head and using the bureaucracy in their favor of like, technically, we fulfilled this. So by your honor bound agreement, you have to comply. Oh, interesting. And then can I describe my favorite scene? Uh, second favorite scene, obviously, after Jordy. Um, is is that uh, Urena ends up going over to number two um, from the planet and saying, you know what, I've always had a thing for you. Let you wear my magical ruby. And now you're my number one. And now I got the polyamorous relationship, which we weren't yet aware that there was this standard in place for a woman can have uh, multiple husbands. And uh, so that was pretty cool to see that flipped on its head. Uh, But then again, equality is not... um, tipping things in the opposite direction. (laughs) (laughs) But again, it would have been so much more interesting if we had had that dynamic from the beginning and it was Yurina who was the the antagonistic character instead. Oh, absolutely. I would have loved that. I love a powerful and yet evil woman. And then we would have gotten Yar versus Lagan still in the jungle gym, but whatever. I mean, wasn't that part of Yar's complications line also was like, if they were to be in a relationship somehow and people asked, so how did you meet? She'd have to say, 
Well, he kidnapped me. Yeah. Pretty typical story on their planet, actually. Before we go, I want to discuss Wesley's burlap sweater. Who made that for him and why? And I want those shoulder blades. Those weren't shoulder pads. Those were shoulder <laughs> blades. He must have been so freaking hot in that outfit. On set and no one would care. He's too young for you to say that. <laughs> yeah. So they get the vaccine. They leave the planet and they head to Starbase at warp <laughs> They're still working on it. There's an emergency. Millions of people are dying. <laughs> Let's stroll over to Starbase 121. They ran into this when they started doing Stardates as well, is that nobody pays attention to what warp we're going or what Stardate it is. Just say a number. It's fine. But then people started paying attention and it didn't make sense. And they would, oh, we have to make a Bible and stick to it of like our magic science actually has rules. Isn't that a great point to be at where your fans are so diehard that you're going to have a podcast about it 33 years in the future <laughs> where they will check your star dates. It's the hope. Guys, did you, I know, I think I know the answer. You did not enjoy this episode. <laughs> so I guess I don't need your review in that respect. Uh, any words of warning for people who are going to watch this? Uh, careful, it gets better. <laughs> yeah, let's power through, friends, because I hear season two is pretty baller. I have some recollections of when they get more budget than to build a jungle gym to fight on, and I am excited for when we actually start to find some new progressive values in these episodes and learn new things and find real dilemmas in the decision-making of these characters. This was the first episode that my wife Katie sat down and watched with me since I started re-watching this. Uh And uh, as she sat down, I was like, okay, you need to understand something about the first season. (laughs) It is good to know that, especially in this era of Hollywood and how the separation between the talent and how the show is getting made, that they stood up for these guest stars enough to fire the director, which at that time was like a little bit unheard of and a big deal. I mean, on one hand, yes, it's awful and it's it's a garbage episode. But on the other hand, you can see them making the steps to protect the cast and what they're trying to create together. So, yeah, it's it's awful, but hang in there. Yeah, something I was thinking about is these African-American actors or black actors that took these roles. And of course you would, because work is hard to come by. And these are good roles. It's just when you see it all put together in the end, it comes across in such an awful way but like these actors were fantastic and of course they would take these roles so it's a difficult position to put them in yes i'm gonna say that this will probably be the episode that we'll refer to as our least favorite for quite some time until we find something worse now i don't think there'll be anything worse like in terms of like maybe script content than this although i'm yet to see but like i think i will we'll we'll bookmark this one now and then anytime we see an episode we really don't like we should confront it as like is it better or worse than code of honor and i will always say my favorite line How sad for you. (laughs) Guys, that's episode three. Let's talk about what we're going to review next week, which is episode four slash five. I'm going to have to come up with a solid naming convention for these. No, they have production codes. This was 104, season one, episode four. Okay, great. Uh, Episode five of season one is called The Last Outpost. In pursuit of Ferengi marauders, the Enterprise and its quarry become trapped by a mysterious planet that is draining both ships energy. The Ferengi. I can't wait for this makeup. I don't want to like delve too much into it now, but this is the first encounter with the Ferengi, right? Yes. They're a new alien race. They might I think they were mentioned briefly in some of the past episodes of just like examples of like, oh, but like the Ferengi, da, 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 da. but this is the first time that we'll get to see them. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, as always, join us on the discussion for our Discord. Uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon to support us and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, which is Good Time Society. If you want to give us a share, that is 
the greatest way you can get the word out about our show. Thank you. And if you have conflicting opinions for myself or Becca or Jake, make sure to let us know on Twitter because part of Trek is having this discussion. Actually, I won't hear any complaints about anything I say. <laughs> Not complaints. Healthy debates. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You automatically mute all threads that are complaints. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> all right, friends. We'll see you next week. Engage. 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 God damn it. I can never get a right.